Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Another case of violence on the streets of San Francisco. This time, a former fire commissioner was allegedly attacked by a homeless man with a metal pipe. But the suspect's attorney claims it was the fire commissioner who was the aggressor after he sprayed the homeless man with bear spray. We're going to go deeper into this story to see what it says about the homeless situation in San Francisco. Plus, Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten is here after a contentious hearing on Capitol Hill about whether teachers unions kept schools closed for way too long during the pandemic. What are the lessons for next time? And Steven Spielberg says he made a mistake in the re-release of his classic film, E.T., and he'll never do it again. E.T. phone home? E.T. phone home. Okay, we'll talk about that. But we begin tonight with that attack on the streets of San Francisco. We warn you, this video is disturbing to watch. Prosecutors say former San Francisco Fire Department Commissioner Don Carmignani was seriously injured after being attacked on April 5th by a suspect with a metal pipe outside of his mother's home in San Francisco. This video comes from Carmignani's attorney. But this video that you're about to see here provided by the suspect, Garrett Dottie's public defender, shows what she alleges is Carmignani attacking Dottie with a bear spray minutes before that attack with the metal pipe. She says her client ran away, pulling his jacket over his head. Speaking to our affiliate, KPIX-TV, Carmignani says he did not go out to fight anyone. I didn't go out there to fight anyone. I'm trying to get him down the road. It's three on one. I know odds. I'm 52 years old. I have two hip replacements. I'm an old guy. And I could have been a dead guy. Well, the public defender alleges that there's a pattern of someone with Carmignani's description spraying and assaulting homeless people. He, vi- he vehemently denies that. The public defender's office putting out this video from November 2021. We can show you this. This shows an unidentified assailant spraying a sleeping homeless person with bear spray. It's one of eight incidents reported to police over the past two years of someone carrying out an unprovoked attack on unhoused people. Carmignani says it's not him. So far, there have not been any arrests in any of these incidents. Okay, lots for my panel to talk about. Here with me, we have Patrick McEnroe, former professional tennis player, Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Mo Shwanunu, host of the Mo News podcast, and Jessica Washington, senior reporter at The Root. So, Jessica, it, I mean, it, it, I don't know if I, we should um, draw a broader message from everything that we just heard and saw there, but it does seem as though the homeless situation in San Francisco has been a problem for a long time, and people might be losing their minds. Yeah, and I think I want to kind of almost reframe this because I think we talk about the homelessness epidemic and we talk about it as an epidemic of having to see people who are unhoused, having to walk around people who are unhoused, not about people not having sanitary, safe living conditions. I think that's the epidemic we really need to focus on. And this is a community that is really, really vulnerable to violence. You know, those eight attacks are just what's been reported. You know, we know this is a community that is unlikely to report. So I think when we talk about this, you know, as an epidemic, we really need to think about it for the people who are living on the streets who don't have adequate housing. I think that's a great point, but I think that there's another layer of anger, Mosh, which is why aren't officials, 
elected officials doing anything about right. it. So yes, there's anger often directed, as Jessica would say, misplaced at the homeless. But there is anger because it feels like, why do, why do people have to live this way on both sides? The policies are broken in the city and people are frustrated. I mean, talking to friends uh, who live there, you know, it's, it's thing upon thing in San Francisco. The latest numbers that were out last week, violent crime is up this year. Property crime is up this year. Uh, offices are vacant. Uh, they have a, a huge vacancy issue. Then you have the uh, cost of housing, which is making it difficult for people to live there. Then on top of that, you have the opioid fentanyl issue, which is reinforcing this. On top of that, add the mental health issue. So you have this concoction in San Francisco, and it appears that uh, the, the policymakers there have not been able to figure out an effective strategy here. And, you know, they need to, the city needs to function. And now, clearly, the former fire commissioner is taking things in his own hands in his own unfortunate way. Yeah. Scott? Well, he denies that. A. B, right. he was beaten savagely and was seriously injured. C, I think some of the points you made are, are dead on. You've people out there that say the living conditions are, uh, you know, not palatable. You've got businesses pulling out. Stores can't stay open. I mean, there's been a number of brand stores that have had to close because the minute they open, people are breaking in and, and, and terrorizing their staff and stealing their inventory. It's become a very, very difficult place uh, for a lot of people to envision living and working, and the violence uh, uh, is up this year. Uh, and it's sad because this is one of the great American cities uh, that's become, to a lot of people, a real blight, uh, you know, on on America right now. And, and it, the people there deserve better. Yeah, uh, Patrick, when we look at, I mean, San Francisco gets a lot of attention probably because of what Scott said. It's such a gem and people love it right. so much. But in terms of that size city, where, you know, if you look at violent crimes in similar sized city, it's in the middle. So Nashville's higher, Indianapolis is higher, Jacksonville is higher. It's near Fort Worth and Oklahoma City. Nevertheless, um, there's a problem. I mean, you keep, we all keep hearing this about San Francisco. It's well, real. There's a rampant problem all over the country, as you just noted. And we've, we've discussed this before. First of all, the idea that someone would spray a homeless person is it's absolutely awful. Whether it's this, the fire commissioner or not, whomever it was, it's just, out, just horrendous that someone would do this. I made the mistake last summer. I went to visit some friends in San Francisco. I went to college out there close by to San Francisco. I took my two teenage daughters. I said, we're going to take a walk to visit my old professor from college. Walking through that area in the mission area of San Francisco, I thought, well, I'll give my daughters like a little reality check. This was way too much of a reality. I mean, it was literally like people were like zombies. I mean, it was scary to see that this type of thing is happening in our great country and one of the great cities in this country, to see the amount of people, all different backgrounds, completely drugged out on the streets. You you have an issue. I mean, even the CNN correspondent, Kyung La, a couple months ago, was there to do a story on crime and literally had her vehicle broken into with security present. Talking to people in San Francisco, they leave the doors of their cars unlocked with signs in the window saying nothing valuable in here. Yeah, I remember when people used to do that in New York in the 80s and 90s, yeah. And, I mean, this is the situation where, to the point where I'll get notes from people, uh, folks uh, who follow uh, our news accounts on Instagram, who say, well, who is the dumb person who left a bag in a car? I'm like, it's normal to leave property in vehicles in other American cities. In San Francisco, that is no longer the case. And so, Jessica, how did it get like this? Like, why aren't officials, why is it okay for, you know, Patrick to walk through zombies with his daughter? Like, why is that okay? Why aren't officials doing more? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complex issue. I do think housing has got to be a part of it, addressing the fact that people have substance abuse needs, people need to be able to access treatment. Those treatment options aren't always available. I think that's something that obviously needs to be addressed. And I mean, you mentioned the statistics. This is not more dangerous than any other similarly sized city. So sometimes when we talk about it, I do feel like part of it is that it's more visible in San Francisco. I think people see that there are people who are unhoused. There are people who maybe make them uncomfortable on the street. And then they kind of extrapolate from there and say it must be more dangerous than the other American city when the, the statistics just don't back that up. I and mean, we can, you know, you read them, we can look at them. And so I do think that's part of it. But I also do think there is a problem. We do need to address wealth inequality. I think that is a massive problem in San Francisco and it definitely contributes to these issues. I mean, the permissive drug culture, the progressive criminal justice policy culture. I mean, is there an elected official in California or San Francisco who wants to take some responsibility for their view of how government and society should be run for causing this in this city and and in the state. I mean, you say it's in the middle. I don't hear, I don't hear people closing stores in some of these other cities. I don't hear, I I mean, our own reporter (laughs) experienced it while she was there. I, this, this, there has to be some accountability. It's not just what are people going to do today? What have people been doing? over the last 10, 20, 30 years. I, I mean, we've talked a lot over the last few weeks about one-party rule, supermajorities, right? In the case of Tennessee with the Republicans, uh, in the case of San Francisco with Democrat one-party rule. And so the question is, you know, ultimately here, we talked about all the elements here in San Francisco. This is a complex web. This isn't just one thing. Now, San Francisco recently announced they're doing major pay raises for the police force. It turns out that they are 25% down of what they need in terms of a police force in that city. Well, part of that's a morale issue. Part of that was a pay issue. People don't want to be, you know, also arresting people that they know are going to just be out on the street the next day. So there are a lot of complex policy issues that need to be addressed by the mayor, by the city council there. And clearly, whatever they've come up with so far hasn't worked. All right, friends, thank you very much for that. Uh, I sense we'll be covering more (laughs) of this. Thank you for all your perspectives. So now this, what have we learned from pandemic school closures? And what will we do differently, God forbid, when there's a next time? Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten is here next to talk about all of that. House Republicans venting their anger to the leader of the second largest teachers union in the country on Capitol Hill this week. Republicans allege that the union and others worked with the CDC to keep schools closed longer than necessary amid the COVID pandemic. But did AFT ever provide suggested revisions to the CDC's operational strategy regarding school closures or reopenings? Did you suggest revisions to their operational strategy? What we suggested, sir, was ideas. I'm a member of Congress that sits on two committees that deal with this, uh, the CDC. I don't have a direct number to Director Walensky, do you? Um, I do not talk to representatives you have a, of the government. Do you have a direct number to, to Director Walensky? Do I have Director Walensky's direct number? Yes. Yes, I have Director Walensky's direct number. Well, hopefully she'll give it to me too. So I've been to some weird hearings in this Congress, uh, Mr. Chairman, but this one might be the weirdest because it's convened in order to accuse a federal agency of the crime of consulting with American citizens. 
Randy Weingarten is the president of the American Federation of Teachers, and she joins me now. Randy, great to have you here. You. Basically, it sounds like what they were saying was that you had undue influence on the CDC to make um, policy, I guess, about when schools would reopen. What's your response to that? So, you know, we represent teachers and nurses. We're actually the fastest growing nurse union these days. And with the Biden administration coming in, they wanted to reopen schools more fulsomely. We wanted to reopen schools more fulsomely. And we said during the transition, you need to have clear scientific-based guidance that people can understand. I mean, most of us are not scientists. So, and, and what we were getting for the months beforehand was unclear and unhelpful. So you needed the resources for things like ventilation, masks, the things that in a, in, in a respiratory disease that's not seen, you could have, you, that would help people, testing, and you needed clear guidance. When, when the Trump administration wanted to reopen schools in, I believe, summer of 2020 for the fall, you opposed that. No, I did not oppose that. What we said was, and in fact, in July 2020, the Superintendents Association, the, um, I saw you raise your eyebrows, the Superintendents Association, the NEA, the American Pediatricians, and we said, yes, open schools. In fact, in April 2020, we came up with the first report about how to open schools. It didn't mean there wasn't fear. There was a lot of fear out there, and we kept saying we have to do it safely. And in fact... I worked on the Cuomo Commission to reopen schools in New York. And so what we were saying was make sure that there's guidance that's clear and give us the safety protocols. What we didn't have in 2020 was we didn't, we didn't know whether masks would actually, masks and social distancing or anything else would actually spread, stop the spread of COVID. By 2021, we knew that people were not vectors the same way that we didn't know in 2020. Yes, however, there were still um, mitigation um, procedures that the teachers' union really wanted yes, to put absolutely. into place. That So if if people weren't vector, I mean, if, if what you're saying, why were you so um, rigid about ventilation and about six feet versus three feet? I mean, those were things that were actually, stopping, actually, it we sounds like, people from getting back into school. Kids. We were... We pretty much said we needed ventilation because if you don't have good ventilation in an airborne disease, you're not going to you're not going to be able to dissipate the airborne disease. We thought that six feet. What the science we were seeing was that six feet and mass would be the basic protocols we needed. That's the science that we saw. It was only by the two studies that CDC did in basically March of 2021 that showed, like the Wisconsin study and the Massachusetts study, that if you had three feet, you could actually open scores more fulsomely. And so in March, we said, we looked at those studies and we said, okay, the three feet makes sense. But not until September. In other words, no, that no, was No, 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 no. That was March of right, 20... But I mean, schools, you still weren't pressing for schools to be open no. until September of 2021. We, we were pressing for schools to be open from April of 2020. We didn't know how to do it. Our first report pressed for schools to be open. We knew schools needed to be open. My first op-ed with John King in April 2020 talked about how we needed to have summer school. I worked with 
then Governor Cuomo about reopening schools in New York State. And what New York State did is they had a trigger that said any time that schools were less than 5% um, community spread, we can open. The difference between New York and nationally Mm -hmm. was that the Trump administration kept saying, be open without any guidance as to how, and people were scared. And there was lots and lots of illness. There, and yeah. there was lots of illness within my own membership. But my membership kept saying, if we have the safety protocols of the mitigating circumstances that the CDC had, look, I came into C, um, to CNN today. You still had to take a COVID test. Yeah. So, so what we were looking for were enough to assure people that they wouldn't get sick. Yes, but some of it, I mean, I think you would say, in fairness, some of it was unrealistic. It, it's hard to change an old public school's ventilation system instead of just opening windows. But, but, but right. forget but, the mitigation but for we, a second. But we understood that, which yeah. is why we weren't, I mean, we wanted new ventilation systems, Yes, but, but that wasn't the... That wasn't a deal breaker. It wasn't? No. Well, it was the, it was initially, what were the COVID protocols? The same as in grocery stores and in other places. And the layered mitigation of mass and distance. Distance. Yes, which is also unrealistic in a packed classroom of but, lots of but kids. But then what happens is that if you keep on saying that the safety issues are negotiable, then what does that say? to the human beings that are in classrooms who are not tested, are not vaccinated, and you can't see what is going on with this disease. And the flip side of that is the kids. And so the kids, I mean, in retrospect, in hindsight, now that the smoke has cleared, do you regret not pressing for full um, school, full in-person school sooner? I regret COVID. And I regret that we didn't know um, sooner um, what was key to keeping people safe and keeping schools open. Both of those things were really important. I had many members who died in the first few months in terms of COVID. We had members die in New York City. We had many people who got really, really sick. And black and brown folks got more sick than white folks. So what we were trying to figure out was how to reopen schools and how to do it safely. And the problem is that you already have in city schools bad conditions that are hard, that are hard for teachers to teach in. And what we're trying to do was make sure that they and families were safe. And what about the kids who have lost, you know, the the stats I can pull up about how many years and how many grade levels and what they've lost in terms of teaching? Well, I think what's what we've been trying... So that's part of the reason we were trying to reopen from April 2020 and why I think in this new investigative report, they concluded that, yes, schools needed to be reopened with the safety kits. And what they ultimately have concluded that the safety kits like testing, which is what Dr. Shaw from Rockefeller Foundation and I got to by January 2021, which is what most industries have done, if we ended up doing testing and spending the money there, instead of social distancing, we would have had, that would have been a better route. 
if we knew in 2020 what we knew in 2021, schools would have been reopened more fulsomely. But at the end of the day, of course I care about the effects of COVID. And what we've been trying to do in the last two years is how do we actually overcome those effects? And so what I just did a couple of weeks ago was there are two interventions I think right now will really help. One is community schools wrapping services around schools. Because if we do that, we really wrap not just food services, but mental health services, health services, after-school programs, all these programs that will help kids um, really reconnect with each other and with their well-being. That's number one. And number two is experiential learning. If we, kids need to have a joy of going to school. And what we've seen in terms of career tech ed programs in particular, is that when kids do hands-on learning yeah. and really work together, sure. then, and so... Project-based. So project-based. Yeah. So, so, so the, but the bottom line was, yep. once we got this guidance between February 2021 and May 2021, we went from 46% of schools open to 95% of schools okay. open. Um, Randy, do you mind if my panel asks you some questions? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Jessica. Uh, So, I mean, I'm curious. So what you're saying is, and I just want to kind of understand, so you were saying that essentially you were pushing for schools to be reopened, but you wanted these specific measures. And I just also want to clarify, you're saying that ventilation wasn't a requirement for reopening? I mean, ventilation is pretty important, but no, it wasn't a requirement for reopening. You know, in big, all the big businesses that reopened, they had MERV 13 filters, they had all of this, but not in schools. I mean, schools... We wanted to try to open windows, but take a school like Parkland. All of the measures about violence meant that windows were closed. The measures that were needed in terms of COVID meant windows needed to be open. Who made those decisions? People would say, I don't know which way to go. Mm. And so when I, you know, the, the, as I said, I sat on Cuomo's commission to reopen schools, which we did, and virtually all the schools were reopened in New York. Okay. But the, the lack of clarity and the lack of um, an attentiveness on the federal level to wanting to give us guidelines, not just guidelines, but the safety protocols. We bought $3 million worth of PPE for our members yep. because we couldn't get it. Okay, let me get um, some our other panelists in. Scott? Yeah, um... We don't know each other, but speaking on behalf of millions of American parents, I have four at home. I had to teach them at home. My wife had to teach them at home. I am stunned at what you have said this week about your claiming to have wanted to reopen schools. I think most you'll find that most parents believe you were the tip of the spear of school closures. There are numerous statements you made over the summer of 20, scaring people to death about the possibility of opening schools, and I hear no remorse whatsoever about the generational damage that's been done to these kids. I have two kids with learning differences. Do you know how hard it is for them to learn at home and not in a classroom that was designed for them? And for you to sit in front of Congress and the American people and say, oh, I I wanted to open them the whole time? I, I am shocked. I'm stunned. I'm stunned. And there are millions of parents who feel the exact same way. Okay. Go ahead, Ryder. So, I don't know you, sir, and you don't know me. 
but I have worked for the last 20 or 30 years helping kids every single day. I've been a school teacher. I've been a union leader. I knew and understood the importance of reopening schools and the importance of making sure that people were safe. And poll after poll that we did of parents, and I spent a lot of time with parents, said that they basically understood and supported that we needed to do both. I'm really sorry about your kids. You think parents wanted kids. to keep the kids? Nobody you, you wanted think to. Parents Nobody wanted to keep you kids at home. Kid, why did we fail? How did Europe and the rest of the civilized world get this right, and we failed? They had the. the how did they? How did the that schools, happen? The schools in Europe that opened sooner than we did, and most of them did, had the mitigating circumstances, had the mitigating strategies that we were just talking about. And it wasn't negotiable. It wasn't, oh, well, it's inconvenient to have six feet or it's inconvenient to have masks. They had these things. And the other thing they did, and I don't know if it was right or wrong, the other thing they did is they prioritized schools over commerce. They prioritized schools over bars and restaurants and things like that. They did. Let me, let me jump in because I, I respect what Scott's saying. Obviously, I come at it from a slightly different perspective, having three children also in public school in New York, just outside of New York City. And we, we sort of dealt with the cards that we were, ha- we were handed. What I want to ask you, Randy, is when you look back, and obviously we all know about hindsight, as a, as a parent on the outside looking in, my sense of the situation was always, this is because the teachers and the adults around are, are more afraid of this virus than the kids. Because as we found out fairly quickly, mm. we knew that children weren't going to be that affected by this particular disease. And so from, from my perspective, it seemed like this was coming from the teachers and the leadership on their side saying, hey, this isn't safe for us. It's not safe for our family members, for the community. Is that what drove, you think, the decision to play it extra safe when it came to allowing the kids to go back in the classroom? Well, I think the problem is that teachers actually teach kids. So if it wasn't, if, if, I mean, look at what happened in Omicron when we were able, because of testing, we were able to actually keep schools open. Some schools shut when there were too many teachers absent. But we were able to keep schools open because we understood and used testing as a way to do that. So I think what happened was that people were fearful. You're absolutely right. But even though, thank God, kids didn't get as sick as adults, adults were getting sick and adults were dying. And so we were trying to figure out, and I'm not saying that there, look, there were people all across America who were taking different positions than, you know, I was at the AFT, including some of my members. And you saw some of those things. But we were trying to figure out what were the mitigating strategies that were needed to keep schools open. And that's what, you know, and, and that's what we tried to do from April 2020. And what I produced, I went and I testified in Congress yesterday voluntarily, and I produced much documentation proving all the things that we tried to say. Now, that's why I keep on using the Cuomo administration, because frankly, 
Governor Hogan, Governor Cuomo, Rockefeller Foundation, lots of governors, they were working in a really different way than the Trump administration was. And the Trump administration did a great job in terms of vaccines, but in terms of giving people the kind of guidance to say, to do what Europe did, we didn't get it. And that's why in this, the investigative book that just came out yesterday, what they said was, if we had gotten that guidance, that stockpile of guidance, we would have been able to open up earlier. And we just didn't get it. Randy, thank you very much. Thank you for answering all of our questions. We really appreciate you being here. You know, this subject is not easy for a lot of, for everyone. But the bottom line is, now, why are we not doing everything we need to do now? Yes, that's and, a great and point. That is, and that's what, you know, I'd like to have seen one question from the um, Republicans that questioned me yesterday for three hours about what we need to do now. That's a great point. And yes, we do need to get ahead of this next one and not just be reactive. Thank you very much, guys. Randy, thanks for being thanks, here. Thanks, of course. Okay, former Vice President Mike Pence doing something today that certainly will not make his old boss happy. He testified to a federal grand jury investigating Donald Trump after uh, about January 6th. What does it mean for Pence's 2024 ambitions? All of that is next. Wrong. Sorry, Chief. Sorry. Hey, you want to play ball? Great nuts. Let's play. All right. That brawl at the plate, courtesy of the Bad News Bears. Best movie ever. Yep. It's as much a part of the game as Peanuts and Cracker Jack, arguing with the umpire. But the parents of little leaguers in one New Jersey town have been apparently taking it too far. And now the umpire strikes back. Uh, do you like that? The Deptford Little League says if you get too unruly or abusive at your kid's baseball game, you will have to umpire three games yourself. My panel cannot wait to get into this one. That's, that's creative, right? If you abuse and harass the umpire... That's great, right? You have to umpire the next three games. Yeah, I, I go to a lot of youth baseball, you know, assistant youth baseball coach here. <laughs> what? I'm, uh, I mean, if you, you want somebody, the lead. If yeah. you want someone to throw 500 batting practice <clears throat> pitches and only hit three or four children, I'm your man. <laughs> I, I have seen people get out of hand at these games. I mean, we all have probably. And uh, I thought this was a, a creative way to deal with it. The reality is these youth sports, I mean, the coaches are volunteers. A lot of times the umpires are like kids. They're like Teenagers themselves are making 10, 15 bucks a game. Uh, and so you, you do see people get out of hand. So I, I thought this was a, a good reminder that the reason we're there is not, and the next play is not going to determine whether your child plays third base for the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> Patrick, it, it, yes, right. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of people involved in this who are volunteers or very low paid teenagers, and you just can't ride them like this. Are you a yeller at your kids' uh, games? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you something. When I was a kid, I was a pretty good junior tennis player. I was lucky I've enough. Heard. I was lucky <laughs> enough to go play the biggest tournament in Europe for under 16. And this was actually the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. They made all the kids that were in the tournament, who were playing in the tournament, had to umpire a match mm. of two other kids that they didn't know. So I'm umpiring a match for a kid from Sweden and a kid from Spain. And it teaches you a lot about 
first of all, the respect for what it is to be an umpire. And now they should absolutely, like these crazy tennis parents, you know, like in baseball, other sports too, we should make, maybe we should make the parents be the umpires as well because this is, this is absolutely a great move, absolutely brilliant. Jessica, you, you might not, are you part of this world yet? Do you know how unruly these like middle school games can get? I do. I have a little brother. He was an amazing baseball player. Um, he's in freshman in college now, but so I don't think he's playing right now, but he was really good. And yeah, it does get completely out of hand. And I just have to say, if you are a grown man trying to fight someone over a child's baseball game, you might need to work that out. And maybe you need to work it out as an umpire. <laughs> you need to question your life choices. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I mean, how bad was the call? I mean, did we really? <laughs> well, what's wild is some states have had to go to, 22 states now have passed laws specific to assaulting or harassing a sports official. Like, there are laws being written because of how rampant this is. Why? Why are people doing this? Why are they getting so out of hand? Since when did we just start taking middle school and grade school sports? I I, I call it the over-professionalization of youth sports. Mm. It's happening Mm. all over the sporting world. The biggest reason it's happening that I see is is because of college. It's so much more difficult to get into college. Mm. So parents see this as as a way they can help their kids get into certain colleges. So that's part of it. The other part of it is you get these people that were terrible athletes themselves and their kid might be a good athlete and they they're living vicariously through their kids and that is problematic but i like what you're saying patrick i think you're right it's very high stakes because of college yeah and and there's so much money in sports of all different sports so all the economics come into it if you want to play youth baseball you've got to play in the travel team you got to play more you want to play in the tennis tournament you got to play extra you know extra terms you got to play more and that's happening across the board in every sport and that's a big problem. You know, you, you see it's a lot harder to make it in, in whatever level you're at in sports. When you want to play in your high school team, you want to play in college, you have a dream of maybe being a professional. It's much more difficult now because all the kids are playing a lot more when they're younger. So the stakes are getting higher, and that's not what youth sports is supposed to be about. You hear me, Scott? You hear? You hear that? <laughs> Take it easy out there. Take hey. it easy. Everyone watched King Richard, and now everyone is King Richard. Exactly. One of my, exactly. You know, one of my first jobs as a teenager, I was a little league baseball umpire. Really? Go. Yes, I was. You know, I played baseball, and uh, and so I would make a few extra bucks. And uh, how did that go? I mean, occasionally people get upset with the strike zone. I'm just saying, like, and uh, yep. and uh, and, it, and it's only. Yep. I think it's only gotten worse over. Oh, the years. And by the way, it mortifies the children. Yes. When the adults, I, I think the kids are, I think they, I think they're mortified in the moment, and I think they don't forget things like that I for a long you. time. I yeah, agree with point. you. Yeah. No, my girls often bring up like, Dad, I could hear your voice yelling. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. All right. Meanwhile, director Steven Spielberg has said he has regrets about what he did with ET. He made some edits on ET that he did not like, and we'll get into all of that. never should have done that because E.T. is um, a product of its era. And it, it's not, it, no, no film should be revised based on the lenses we now are either voluntarily or being forced to peer through. All our movies are a kind of um, measuring, sort of a signpost of where we were when we made them and what, what the world was like. That's legendary director Steven Spielberg saying that he regrets 
editing out the guns in the 2002 20th anniversary release of his classic movie, E.T. He's just the latest to weigh in on the ongoing debate over whether art should be edited to match changing social norms. Back with me, my panel. Um, So, Mo, it's so interesting because we've debated this a lot around Roald Dahl, around different books. And somehow, listening to Steven Spielberg settled it for me. Like, Mm. it's a time capsule. I got it. Like, it's a time capsule, and maybe it should be kept as a time capsule. But the feeling about books sometimes is different than that. Totally. It it actually takes me back to, I think recently there was a controversy around Gone with the Wind. And now they just roll something in the beginning saying, this is from a bygone era. I mean, it's it's a film made nearly 100 years ago, about 150 years ago. So what are we going to go? Computer generate AI change gone with the wind? No, it, it, it is what it is. You can explain that, that was the, these were the cultural norms of that time. I mean, you could go, by the way, relatively recently to 40-year-old virgin sure. or, or wedding crashers. I mean, comedy is written 15 years ago, and there's word, you know, words used. And Oh, Friends would be shot differently. Friends, though, sure. you know, the most successful sitcom of one of them of all times. Yeah. Um, are we wrong, Jessica? I don't think you're wrong, necessarily, and I certainly don't want to be telling Steven Spielberg how to make <laughs> movies. It seems a little presumptuous for me. I mean, what I will say is you are, if you don't remake some of these movies, and they are incredibly offensive, people just won't watch them. And maybe that's okay. I mean, I just think personally for myself, if I'm thinking about a film that I know is offensive and I'm just going to sit there for two hours and be uncomfortable, I'd rather just not watch it. I think plenty of people would agree with that. But that I don't necessarily think that means we have to re-edit everything, but it does mean you're going to lose out on some of those audiences. Patrick? I think it's some of those great TV shows, you know, all in the you know, Archie Bunker. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that, I don't think that would fly these days, you know, some of his comments. But, I mean, for, for a movie, for a film, um, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a way to just kind of change it up. Because, you know, you do have, when you're editing a movie, again, I'm not uh, certainly not an expert in this department. You, there's so many different takes, right? There's so many different angles. So sometimes it can actually make it maybe a little more interesting. In this case, I think Spielberg realized what he did was not what he probably should have done. But when you have that artistic license, you know, you could sort of change. It's like taking an old song, you know, when a great band takes an old song and they, they perform for years and they, they change it up. You know, they, may, they put in a couple different riffs. I don't see what there's a harm in that. I think he could not have said it better. I 100% agree with him. I do think there's a group of people in this country who are dedicated to going around. And, and I mean, they made Beyonce change her song not too many months ago. You try to go back in time. The idea of changing this stuff, this art, this brilliant products that people make, is it, it's, it's like they think we're too stupid as America, or as consumers of information to understand the time and the context in which it was made. We're not idiots. We know, we know, like, if a movie was made in the, this time period by certain kinds of people, we know what the context of that was, and that's educational in some ways for the people who are consuming it today. That was a courageous thing he said because I'll guarantee you he's catching some a bushel of of you know what over having said it uh, maybe I don't know I don't know if he is that would be interesting to know but I think that one of the arguments is that for relevance that there are some words mm-hmm. that become antiquated and for relevance for kids they change them to like a modern word but in any event it's a fascinating topic and we give Steven Spielberg the last word on that one yeah. <laughs> all right um, ahead some of our favorite reporters are getting ready to tell us their scoops and the top stories that they are working on for tomorrow so we'll be right back Okay, coming up next, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow, like these. For the first time in modern history, a vice president has been compelled to testify about the president he served under. Mike Pence. 
testifying for more than five hours today to the federal grand jury investigating the aftermath of the 2020 election and the actions of Donald Trump. We'll find out what happens next. And then there's the story of Fed Chair Jerome Powell pranked by a couple of Russians pretending to be Ukrainian President Zelensky. How did he figure it out? And Harry Enten will tell us why the American dream of owning your own home is out of reach for millions of young Americans. Our reporters are here. They are ready to go. They'll go through all of those and more when I join them next. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. Here with me tonight are Harry Enten. Priscilla Alvarez, Ryan Young, and Vanessa Yurkiewicz. Great to have all of you guys here. Okay, so we start with Vice President Mike Pence testifying today before a federal grand jury that's investigating the aftermath of the 2020 election and the actions of former President Donald Trump. This is the first time in modern history that a vice president has been compelled to testify about his former boss, the president of the United States. Priscilla's been working this story. Priscilla, before we get to what's going to happen next, and I am interested in that, Five hours? That's a long time. Do we know what he said? It's a long time. And he was poised to talk about the conversations that he had with former President Donald Trump, then the president, before January 6th. So uh, sources tell our colleagues that, as you said, this went on for five hours. And it is notable for this investigation. And also, Allison, because we're talking this week about a 2024 election, but yet this investigation is still looking at the aftermath of 2020. Now, what we know about what Pence has shared so far is through his memoir, through his public comments. And he has said that he refused to do the bidding of Trump on January 6th, going so far as to say that Trump said that he would, uh, wouldn't would have followers if he didn't, he was too honest to try to overturn the election. So do we know what happened in the room? No. But can we get a sense based off what Pence has already said publicly? A little bit. And not, of course, investigators have been interested in what he had to say because of his proximity to the White House. Now, we should note that the day of January 6th, Pence was in the Capitol. He narrowly escaped. You remember the footage of him uh, leaving the Senate floor when the attack happened. Uh, And so this is very much focused on the conversations leading up to that date and the day of from our understanding, he was not talking to Trump. Okay. And so what's going to happen next? Now that Pence has testified for five hours, what's the next step here? Well, this investigation is moving quickly, and it's going to continue to unfold, and we'll continue to learn more about where it's headed and what Pence Pence may have said. I mean, I think that's the question, right, is exactly what he shared with investigators during this five-hour sit-down. But it's just one more sort of development in a case that is still critically important when we're looking at the aftermath of the 2020 election. We're looking at January 6th of 2021. And really, when we still see to this day people who believe in election conspiracy. I mean, basically, with five hours, we can assume he answered questions. He didn't say pass. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be a lot of passes if he did. I I wonder, I haven't checked Truth Social today, but have we heard from President Trump about um, Pence sitting for this today? I have, I'm like you, haven't seen any comments from Trump yet. Does that mean that he won't weigh in? We'll see. And recall, too, that we're waiting to see whether Pence does launch a bid and whether he decides to run himself in 2024. And what happens? What's he waiting for? Well, that's a question for his team. I think think the 6% or the 7% of the polls, that's what he's waiting for, right? I mean, is that where he is right now? That is where he is. 
I mean, for a former vice president of the United States, I think the last former vice president who was polling that poorly was probably Dan Quayle, who, of course, was the vice president through early 1993 and when he was trying to run for president in 2000 and had to basically back out because he had no support at this point. And it's just so interesting to me that we have Pence, we have Trump, who's actually running right now, running away with the Republican nomination, while we have someone like Pence, who, from everything I could see, did what he was supposed to do on January 6th, and the Republican base has said, nah, we're good, thanks. Well, there seems to be a reason why you call him Teflon Don, right? And at this point, it seems like nothing injures him at all in the public eye. I live in Georgia, I live in Atlanta, and of course, there's that whole idea of maybe this investigation is going to happen. And there are still people who are going to support him no matter what. And when you think about the vice president, he did the right thing. You brought that up. And people said, hey, you did the right thing on that day. But that has not moved the needle at all so far. With Nobody's even talking about the book anymore. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, and to your point, I was watching a congressional hearing this week about immigration unaccompanied kids. One of the Republican witnesses was at... In, at January 6th in 2021. In fact, uh, Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell flagged the tweet and said, you were at this protest, insurrection. She said she had not gone into the Capitol. But as she defended herself, it was, I was there peacefully. It was, I was, you know, on the Supreme Court steps. I was praying. And I did not see violence. And so we still see sort of the conversation about what did or didn't happen. There's still discord about what occurred on that day, despite the footage that is so widely distributed at this point. Okay, let's move on and talk about immigration. So this um, Trump-era policy is coming to an end. Mm -hmm. And there's a surge at the border. And so what is President Biden's plan? So the big date we're all looking at is May 11th. The reason why is because the coronavirus public health emergency expires on that day. What that means is that this authority, known as Title 42, ends. What it has allowed authorities to do up until this point is to expel certain migrants back into Mexico or to their origin country. This is something that was uh, started in March of 2020 under Trump. So with this going away, there is concern within the administration. I've been talking to officials on a regular basis about this, that there is going to be a surge. That one senior uh, Customs and Border Protection official told me they know of several thousand migrants who are already in northern Mexico waiting to cross on that date. Now, look, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he knows this. He talked about it today. He said that it's going to be a challenge in those first few weeks as they go back to the protocols we've been using for decades. But the problem is that we're going back to protocols at a moment of mass migration in the Western Hemisphere. And so how do you use protocols that, by all accounts, are outdated for a problem that is of this century. And so that is what their their focus is right now. They're opening regional processing centers for migrants who are currently tr- coming up to the U.S.-Mexico border so that they can apply for legal pathways. They're imposing consequences. Um, and they're also taking measures that even Biden's allies aren't happy with. For example, they're going to release a new asylum rule that would largely bar migrants who have come up through other countries from seeking asylum in the United States. This is notable because we've never done that before. These are steps that they're having to take that don't often sit well, even with Democrats, with immigrant advocates. And it's a Democratic administration having to do them when they're nervous about a surge only weeks away from when Biden just announced his 
candidacy. This is where you go back to the decade-old problem of immigration reform, something that has not been solved by either party. And through my reporting with businesses, what I hear so much about is we wish there was a pathway for folks who want to come to this country that can end up legally working in this country because we're seeing worker shortages across all industries. Farmers, restaurant workers, hotel workers, these business owners want people to come to this country, want them to be able to legally work, but they don't know how to make it happen. And neither does Congress, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. And I've talked to members of Congress in the halls of Congress. I've asked them these questions and there is so, you know, they all agree the system is broken. Everybody will tell you that, Democrats, Republicans, whoever you ask, the president of the United States. But nobody wants to agree on how to solve it moving forward because every time we talk about reform, we start small, might be border security, and then we add legal immigration, we add the worker visa. It starts to sort of snowball, and by then nobody can agree on what's in the package. I would just say, you know, I was looking at some of the latest poll data, you know, which asked essentially which party do you trust more on immigration? Republicans were favored by 10 points. So I think there's obviously some politics they're going on here. But, you know, one thing is we were just discussing this that just sort of goes through my head is that, you know, Americans have very complicated views on all of this. Right. So, you know, if you say if someone's in the country illegally, uh, should we deport them? Yes. Do you think there should be a pathway to citizenship for people who are here illegally? They say yes. I, those two almost seem contradictory in some sense. And I think this sort of gets at what we're talking about is we keep trying to come up with a solution. We've been doing it now for decades upon decades upon decades. And the needle just doesn't move at all. It's, kind of nuts. Well, I think it's, it's kind of funny because it's almost about where you live. If you live in California, you live in Texas, you live in Florida. Border states. Right. You, you yeah. understand immigration from a different perspective, mm-hmm. right? So you grow up with Definitely. it all the time. People in the middle of the country sometimes are not impacted the same way. You see some of these border cities being crushed by just needing to do services for people. And that's just the basics. Yeah. And then you come with education or health care. And then it just compounds. Who's paying for all that? Such a great point. And even in the Northeast, it's hard to have the visceral experience of it living it like they do in the border states. Um, thank you very much for all of that reporting. OK, so next, his murder brought nationwide attention to the civil rights movement. And now, 68 years later, the white woman whose accusation led to the lynching of Emmett Till has died. Has his family lost their chance to get justice? Carolyn Bryant Donham, the woman, the white woman, whose accusation led to the lynching of Emmett Till, has died at 88 years old. In August of 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was taken from his bed, brutally beaten, shot to death, and horrible other things after she accused him of whistling at her. Till's grief-stricken mother made the decision to open his casket at his funeral, shocking the conscience of the nation. Bryant Donham's husband and his half-brother confessed to the murder after the after they were acquitted by an all-white jury. Her role in the brutal death has been investigated several times and was reconsidered by a grand jury as recently as last year. Ryan Young is covering this story for us. So, Ryan, it's been more than 67 years yes. that Emmett Till's um, family has been looking for justice. So what happens now? Well, you think about it, one, how shocking this was for the nation. Just last year, a movie came out talking about what happened with him. It was, it was very powerful. Um, but when you put the pieces together, the family discovered an arrest warrant just last year in the basement for this woman of a, of a, 
a closed courthouse and they were pushing for her to be arrested. And people were like, well, she's older. She's she's sick. And they were like, no, we, we need justice. And you understand when you follow all the other cases across this country why this case sticks out to you. It was Jet Magazine that put those photos out there, which was a very big, popular black magazine at the time. And this really spurred the civil rights movement. But I want you to listen to the family of Emmett Till years later talk about why they thought an arrest was important and why they wanted this warrant to move forward. There can be um, an execution of this warrant, and that's what we want. Um, We are doing this without hate, malice, or vengeance against Carolyn Bryant. We just want justice served. Justice has been denied for 67 years, and it needs to be served. So like anyone else, um, even though it was 67 years ago, Carolyn Bryant has never answered to her role and her culpability in the murder and kidnapping of Emmett Lewis Till. And you think about the fact that it was her own words that really spurred all this talk about maybe we should look back at this. Because so. she wrote a memoir? Is that what happened? Absolutely. And you wonder, is it going to get released now that she's dead? I know there were some early advanced copies. So it was an yeah. unpublished memoir in which yeah. she basically confessed to lying? And she confessed to lying. And she never went on camera to apologize for her role in all this, which I think makes people upset. Look, we've covered stories together before. We covered Ahmaud Arbery together before. And you think about his mother and Ben Crump pushing for answers, especially when there was video of what happened. Now take it back to 1955. This kid was 14 years old. He didn't whistle. He didn't make any sexual advances toward this woman. And then the next thing you know, he goes through some of the most painful acts that anyone could ever imagine. His face was transformed based upon what was done to him. And and then it surfaced in a river. And, you know, I said this to you guys in the break. My family members have never gotten over the images of what we've seen here. And this is the push. And you were taught early on to be very careful how you interact with people from other races, especially in the South. There's a powerful moment in the movie where he lived in Chicago. He goes down to Mississippi. Mom tells him the South is different. And you understand how this sort of wraps all of us now because Even to this day, you wanted something to happen where there was some sort of justice. The FBI looked at it in 2018, didn't change anything. The Emmett Till sign. Why didn't they? I mean, since she confessed in her memoir, why why wasn't there more traction with this? I, I think that is probably the most frustrating thing for the public at large, right? Because then when they talked to her, she said, well, maybe I didn't say that. And it became attracted. Absolutely. And it becomes unconclusive. And so no one ever got the just. Uh, justice that they wanted. You think about the Emmett Till sign in Mississippi that's gotten shot up several different times to the point where they replaced it with a bulletproof sign because people would ride by and shoot at the sign. Um, it's just the impact of this case has just been long-standing throughout this country. All the way till last year, too. I mean, President Biden signed legislation called the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act of 2022 that makes lynching a federal hate crime. I mean, it took until 2022 for that to happen. He signed it. He called it at the time lynching, quote, pure terror. And they and the White House press secretary with this news said that they are going to continue to honor his legacy and that they will also continue to tackle what she called racial hatred in this country. So really, the, the aftermath is still felt today. Yeah, two things that stand out to me. Um, if you ever get a chance to go to the, natural, the African-American Museum in D.C. and you can go into a room and they have the Emmett Till room, and it's set up with the coffin with a picture of his face, and you walk through there, it grabs your heart because you understand what that must have been like. Thousands of people lined up to see that. And then six months after this happened, you had Rosa Parks basically say, 
I'm not getting up out of the seat. I mean, this was a, a big moment for this country. We've moved so far, but you would think somebody somewhere would have found a way to sort of make this right. Let's say that memoir comes out. Who gets the money? What happens now? I mean, there's so many questions for that family. I would love to know what Emmett Till's family feels like today. You heard that soundbite. No ill will, but at the same time, they deserved something. I have I, I, a thought and a question. The thought is, it's amazing to me how short ago this actually was, right? This is less than 70 years ago. You know, my mother was alive for this. I, I don't know if she remembers it. She was, she was a young girl at the point. So, but it's so close to where we are now, and we can't forget it. My, my question would be, um, why, if Emma Till did not do anything wrong, obviously, why did she decide to say anything about him? What's going on? With well, that? That, and that is, I think, the scary part of how this works sometimes, right? We're never going to know her motivation. We never got a chance to grill her in the way that we would probably ask her some simple questions, right? Maybe she wanted some attention from her husband. They acted. Not only did they act and they were acquitted, then they sat down for an interview and admitted to killing him, which makes you say, like, who does that? And also, right? of course, that even heightens the families, Emmett Till's family's desire, deep desire for justice, because there's just injustice after injustice. And I read in our reporting today about this that Emmett Till's cousin, actually, after this woman's death, said today that he has sympathy for her family because her family lost a life, this woman, because of what he went through. And I believe he was somewhat of a witness during the time that Emmett Till was taken. And he's re- is, is that correct, that he's yeah. reliving a lot of this? And, and you think about the impact. Like you said, it's a short time ago. Yeah. And you have so many people who remember parts of this. And you're, you're still trying to put the pieces together, even racially. We're not even having the conversations around race that we should always have. But then you move the bar forward and see how much has been done since then. You would hope that something like that could never happen. But again, you have to have all the pieces here. Um, Not only did this happen and the woman never was charged, but what is the justice for this family moving forward? What can be done? Money can't replace them. There's trauma generationally for the, the entire country. How do you move forward? And that is the big question. I think we've done a good job in a lot of places in this country with the conversation around Emmett Till. Obviously, to this day, we're still talking about it 67 years later. Have we heard from his family today? I haven't seen any reports of, the, of them talking today, and, and maybe they're doing out of respect. Yeah. But at the same time, you understand when they found that warrant last year, this might be a closing of a chapter that they didn't even expect, right? Yeah. So we have to see how this plays out. All right, thanks for all that. Absolutely. All right, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell tricked reportedly by Russian pranksters, into holding a video chat with someone he believed was Ukraine's President Zelensky. Vanessa's going to fill us in on this very peculiar development. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell allegedly pranked during a phone call with someone he thought was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The New York Times reports that Powell was tricked by two supporters of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Here's how this call began. Let me just say it's a great honor to speak to you today. I'm glad you made time to speak to me. And uh, it's just great to be with you today. Vanessa Yurkevich is covering this. Vanessa, it's so sad because he's so gracious there and he's so clearly so happy to be speaking to President Zelensky. So 
How did the Fed figure this out and what are they doing about it? Okay, so the Fed has already referred this specific situation to law enforcement to try to figure out exactly how this happened. But what the Fed is saying is that uh, Fed Chief Powell had a call with who he thought was President Zelensky in January. This call happens, but it seems like later they found out that it wasn't actually President Zelensky on the line. It was these two Russian pranksters. He did not reveal, Fed Powell did not, uh, Chair Powell did not reveal any sensitive information. It was a talk about the economy. And The authenticity of this video, though, is coming into question by the Federal Reserve because it's been edited. And there's also just some questions about whether or not this is a real video. However, the Fed is saying that there was a conversation that happened between Chair Powell and someone who he thought was president. So, but hold on, let me just understand this. He wasn't a like FaceTime. He couldn't see somebody. Only only heard the person who we thought was President Zelensky, but it wasn't President Zelensky. Can we hear that? Do we have any of that? We do. We do have some sound. This is an exchange um, of this fake Zelensky asking him a question about the economy. And here's how that went down. Other sanctions working uh, or uh, uh, some, some, something wrong. Russia's GDP has grown. And it is now the, if, if I'm not wrong, the ninth in the world. So how do you assess this, the policy of the Central Bank of Russia, for example? So they managed to save the rubble. Why? Yeah, so I should say that uh, in our system, in our governmental system, it's really the administration wishes to say. We're, we're not part of the administration. We're an independent mm-hmm. central bank. Now, I don't think that sounded like Zelensky, do you? (laughs) I mean, I've heard him a couple times, but it doesn't sound like Zelensky. But this was a call that was set up somehow between Chair Powell and who he thought was President Zelensky. But Chair Powell goes on to talk about the economy, inflation, the rate hikes that he's looking to make in 2023, and the possibility of a recession. A lot of these things he said publicly, but he definitely gets into the nitty-gritty about the U.S. economy, what he feels about the Russian economy, and also what he feels about Ukraine. But remember, these are Russians that he's talking to, not the Ukrainian president. Well, and on a serious note, yeah. their question here is, how did this call get through, right? And also when you zoom out and you look at the context of that we're learning about this in, we're just coming off Pentagon leaks. And that, those, that classified material was also about Ukraine, about the U.S. assessment of what was happening in Ukraine, about their defensive. So it is interesting to see this happen now against the backdrop of the administration trying to wrap their arms around to this day, how much information was released. Now, of course, you know, the the case is ongoing and and prosecutors um, are are working, you know, specifically with the Air National Guardsmen who released this trove of information. But it it was interesting seeing this story come out and thinking about this administration is working through already some concerns regarding their security. I mean, it raises concerns about how does one of the most powerful men 
in the country, in the U.S. right now, get duped. I mean, the Federal Reserve is so tightly run. It is so secure when they make these inflation uh, inflation hikes throughout the year. It is such a closed-door meeting. Our reporters have to use code words with the control room in order to kind of signal what might be happening. Because when you when the Federal Reserve speaks and makes a decision, it can move markets. And but so wait a second. So, tight. so when you're listening, you like, what are the code words that you have to oh, use? I don't know if I can repeat <laughs> the code words, but essentially you try to communicate with the control room. You know what's happening. They tell you just minutes before what the rate hike is going to be, but you can't say it to the control room because in case it gets out, I mean, it can move global markets. That's, That's how tight it is. So you're like, how does, how does the chair get on a Zoom call, presumably, with pranksters. And who? Do we know anything about these pranksters, who they are? So these are reportedly uh, from the New York Times. They report that these are two well-known pranksters in Russia, close ties to Vladimir Putin. They have done this before. They have pranked Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany. They have pranked Christine Lagarde, the former um, head of the IMF. And apparently they do this a lot. And it's just the question of how are they getting through to these world leaders. I, I don't know. The Fed has not said. We don't know much more than that. But I thought this it was is, AI at first. Yeah, that was I was, really I was like, there, there's no way this is real. And then now they're saying it's real. So well, like, the authenticity of the video is in question. And I think AI comes into this because it is so easy right now to create deep fakes. And deep fakes are essentially fake videos of people like Jerome Powell. You could create a video of him speaking. It sounds like him. It looks like him. And I think that's why the Fed is playing a little bit of defense, saying, yes, a conversation happens, but we haven't really been able to watch this video in its totality. And we don't quite believe that it's completely him, but obviously a conversation happened. I, I guess my question, if it's AI, why was the Zelensky voice so much not like him, right? If you're going <laughs> right. to fake one, why not fake the other one? Right. Right. And my other question would just be, why are they pranking Jerome Powell? That's like, you know, calling up and like pranking the librarian. I would think they want to prank somebody a lot more fun than that. And he, and he makes the point that he's not a part of the Biden administration. They are a separate entity. The central bank is separate from the Biden administration. A lot of what these pranksters were asking were actually questions that probably should have been directed at the Treasury, not at Jerome Powell. But it was truly remarkable to listen to the entire conversation. It was edited, but it was about 16 minutes. And you know, these pranksters, they they do ask smart questions and they are trying to clearly get information. But Jerome Powell is just he's really sweet in this interview. Yeah. He's so grateful to be talking to the president of Ukraine. Um, and, and he doesn't say anything that, you know, goes against uh, U.S. policy. He doesn't reveal any information. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I just wonder what the security conversation was like after I that. Know. Like, did, did someone get in trouble? Like, I, I what so. happens? Does the yeah. number change? Like, right. what, what happens? The, the, the dial-in password changed, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no report yet on, on who's at fault for this, but we'll see. All right, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Okay, now this. It is a part, a key part of the American dream, owning your own home. So why is it now out of reach for millions of young Americans? Harry has the raw numbers because it's late night. It's raw. Raw. It's raw <laughs> when we come back. <laughs> Bad news for home buyers. Mortgage rates ticking up for the second week in a row. The 30-year fixed average, 
0.43% this week. Harry's going to explain what that means. Mortgage (laughs) rates are expected to decline slightly later this year as inflation continues to ease. But as Harry tells us, that's not fast enough for people struggling to buy a home now. So, Harry, explain this, because mortgage rates always fluctuate. Yeah. And so why is the American dream now becoming uh, out of reach? So why don't we walk over to the wall, or I will walk over okay. to the wall, and there goes my... Uh, uh, microphone. There goes oh, everything Oh, my gosh. Falling, Harry, yeah. are you kidding? <laughs> Just hold the mic up to your, here we to your face. Here we go. I think I got it here. Um, that'll teach us to that'll do a magic That'll teach us for, for doing a walk. But yep. why don't we just step over here and we'll get an idea of the average monthly mortgage payment on a 30-year fixed rate with 10% down. So it's up about 93% from two years ago to $3,176 for new homes. What exactly is going on here, Allison, is two things. Number one, we mentioned some mortgage rates are going up. But it also turns out the construction for new homes is also going up. So we have these two things combining to make these mortgage rate payments so really, really high at this particular point, way up from where we were two years ago. And, you know, what I'll also point out is that this comes at the same time that we've been seeing a trend, right? 25 to 34-year-olds still living at home with at least one parent at their parents' house. In 1981, look, it was just 8%. Look where we were in 2021, jumped to 17%. I'd be very interested to see the new numbers that come out over the next few months and over the next few years to see if this number comes, this percentage grows even higher, because the fact of the matter is it just becomes more and more difficult for younger Americans, especially where we are right now with how expensive things are to afford to live on their own. But, you know, we were talking about the American dream, right? So life goals extremely are very important to you. Look at this. Owning a home, 70 percent say that is extremely or very important for their life goals. Compare that to raising a family at 68%, a successful career at 63%. So owning a home is right up there on the things that Americans hope and dream that will happen. But of course now it's harder basically than it's been for a really long period of time, Alison. You can come back now, Harry, but try not to hurt yourself. Um, I didn't. Okay, the mic is so professional. The mic held on. So professional. Please. No, I was going to ask, I mean, in forecasting for what happens moving forward, with so many people living at home, or at least a higher percentage than before, is there any calculus that with perhaps savings that would get to a point if rates drop just enough where we would see an influx of buyers in the market? I mean, look, uh, you know, I have learned, you know, forecasting elections is hard enough. The idea of forecasting the housing market to me is basically, you know, forecasting the economy, forecasting the housing market are things that I don't want to get into if only because they're just so difficult to sort of do. But, you know, something that I will point out is renting, right? We obviously know that one-third of this country rents at this point. And, I mean, look at the rent inflation that we're seeing. I, I, I just, I'm moving in like a month. Yeah. The rental market, I have never seen it like this ever. The home, the, buying a home right now is so incredibly expensive. So people are sitting on the sidelines. They're deciding that they're not going to pull the trigger on that right now. So they're renting. So now everybody is just shuffling around the rental market, sending prices absolutely sky high. Here in Manhattan, there's a new uh, median average that has hit a record here in Manhattan, about $5,000 for a one-bedroom. I mean, in other parts- $5,000 a month for a one-bedroom is the median? Yeah. Yeah. In New York City. In New York City. And and that, for the rest of the country, is astronomical. I mean, people are absolutely not paying those kinds of prices. And in New York City, when you talk about a one-bedroom, you're probably talking about, I don't know, 500 square feet, if that. 
But it's just amazing how the housing market is so tied to the rental market. And you're right. It's done it's done just crazy things to the rental market across the country, but I think particularly on the coast. Yeah, yeah. And I'll point out, you know, we have a pretty good uh, measure of that for inflation. What it was that it's the highest year over year inflation on rental prices in 40 years. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't win. That's really what's going on here. Oh, I'm not going to buy. I'm going to rent. Well, you know, now I'm moving into a new apartment right now, and I'm just thinking back to what the rental prices were during the pandemic in New York City. Yeah. And I go, oh, so dream the dream. (laughs) And now it's, now I'm not going to be dreaming. I'm going to be, you know, taking my wallet over here. And you can see I need a very fat wallet. You do. You you must have a lot of cash in there. It's a Costanza. It's a Costanza-like wallet. I think it also, like, kicked your mic off of your pocket. (laughs) It might have been. That might have been why the mic went down. There's so much cash in there. You think they take $2 bills, though? (laughs) Maybe. I'll take that. During the pandemic, you got to think people were actually giving rent, uh, like, concessions. Like, you could get away with moving in for two months for free. True. But I'd rather not have a pandemic, you know, if all Absolutely, yeah. Um, but let's talk about the nature of work and how it's changing. And I bring it up because former President Obama um, has this new Netflix docu-series called Working, What We Do All Day. And he explores the question of what makes a good job. So let's watch a minute of it. What if people from three different industries, from the service entrance to the C-suite, invited us into their lives and told us, what makes a good job good? I just want to be at home, my refrigerator's full, my bills is paid, that's peace. This job is the money supply for my actual passion. You'll never be able to make a living in the arts. When I see a father bring his little son with him, it makes me feel like I missed a lot. What does it take to feel satisfied? I'd have the privilege of building something that would hopefully mean something in the world. I grew up watching my dad define himself through his work. She always tells me, work isn't your only identity. She seems more well-rounded than me. <laughs> so I think that that's a good question. What makes a good job good? What's our answer? Ooh. Um, a little bit of happiness, hopefully. Maybe a little joy. passion. A little passion. passion yeah. Joy, passion, yep. What else? I mean... I look, I come at this looking at both of my parents work like my I come from the immigrant experience working. My dad worked on a tarmac and made his way up and it was providing. And now I have the privilege of saying it's my passion. So Mm -hmm. that's true. It has changed. I I agree. From from provider to purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And passion, I guess. I, I guess for me, you know, do you enjoy going to work or at least not hate it? And can you afford your rent or your mortgage payment and put food on the table? And provide for your family. If you can do those things, then I, you know, that to me is an enjoyable job. Well, as we've established, Harry, you never leave work. I, I mean, you, you live here as far as I can tell. I, you live, you sleep here, you eat here, you're sometimes barely dressed Have here. you seen the mortgage rates? Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I, guess, I guess that's it. I guess it's the rent and the rentals. And yeah. Rates. Yeah. I, I will say I have been here with the exception of leaving for a little dinner earlier since about 8.30 this morning. That's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When, when you think about inflation, though, that it really comes down to the fact that there are people who are working hard, they love their jobs, but now there are a lot of people adding second jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is the part that's crazy. When you think about egg prices alone, I think that is the barometer for a lot of people. Like, you can't just scramble a, three eggs in, a, in anymore. It's, it's, it's different. It's a great point. Yes. Um, okay. Up next, on the lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they're looking out for on the horizon.
We're back with our fabulous panel of reporters to tell us what stories they're keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Harry, what's on your radar? A White House Correspondents' Dinner is this weekend. And can you believe that CNN, for some reason, is putting me on the red carpet so I will be interviewing (laughs) folks out there? Who knows what I might ask, but you'll have to tune in. To find out. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Is this, is this your first one or you've been to several? I, this is the first time I'll be covering the red carpet. Usually I'm kept in the back uh, in studio with Mr. John Berman. But this time I am breaking free. I'll be on that red carpet asking all the important questions, including who are you and why are you here? Excellent. What are you going to wear? And what are you wearing? Are you wearing a, are you wearing a sock? I, yes, I am going. No, I, I actually have rented a tuxedo. Uh, and I'll be going black tie at this particular event. So I will be... Up to fashion, it will be the rare chance for folks to see me in a tie because normally I'm quite casual. We can't wait. Um, okay, Priscilla, what are you looking for? Well, I will be there because Harry stole mine. I <laughs> will be attending this dinner as well, so I'm going to add a little history to it. So this is a tradition that started in 1921 by journalists who were covering the White House. Presidents started attending in 1924. President Biden will be in attendance. The only exception is Donald Trump, who did not attend, but had attended previous uh, White House Correspondents' Dinners as a guest. So we're and some say that's a why part he of tradition. ran for president, because mm-hmm. he attended it, and John Stewart, I guess, or was the... Was it John Stewart who was Seth Meyers? Well, it was President Myers. Obama. Yeah, it was President Obama. Yeah. Yes, it was President Obama. But wasn't there also Seth a Seth Meyers, I think. Seth Myers, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Okay, excellent. Have fun, you guys. That sounds great. Okay, Ryan. Mine's easier. I So I saw this online somewhere, and it said that McDonald's is worried about the economy because people are ordering less French fries. So they're getting hamburgers, but they're not ordering the fries, which, first of all, is criminal. <laughs> yeah, they go together. They're so right, don't they? Got to have a milkshake, yeah. too, if you can but no, but the idea that people are sort of holding on to their money and they're moving just to the burgers, it kind of shows you people are sort of tightening their budgets, which wow. is kind of interesting. So we're sure this is an economic thing, not like a health thing, that why they're skipping the Can fries. Can you really call, uh, you, you, you're eating McDonald's, so you're going to get the, you've got to get the fries. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you have to get the fries. Yeah. Uh, all right, go ahead, Vanessa. I am looking forward to waking up in four hours and being on CNN this morning with my new story. Oh. Uh, it is about a company that is an artificial intelligence company that scans through thousands of hours of police body cam footage. It can scan through hours in just seconds. And what it's looking for is both good behavior of police officers, but also problem behavior of police officers. The uh, founder of the company said that he believes that this technology could have prevented a death like Tyree Nichols because it would have caught what these officers were doing in the years leading up to Tyree Nichols' death. And he believes that this technology is life-saving. It is also a great recruiting tool for police departments because it basically gives them credibility in the sergeants and the chiefs basically paying attention to what their officers are doing. It's amazing technology how it works. It basically every day an email pops into the sergeant's inbox at 6 p.m. and flags all of these different good things that happen to officers, bad things. It could be a game changer for policing, but only 20 departments are using it now. There's 18,000 departments in the country, but AI is doing some incredible things. This could be one thing. But body cameras have been a game changer. And so yeah. add that technology. Add that artificial unreal. intelligence to Absolutely. go through those hundreds of thousands of hours could be that a game changer. That is really fascinating. So cool. And thank you for staying up late with us. I can't believe you have to be reporting tomorrow <laughs> in four hours. for you, Allison. Thank you thank so you. much. It's been wonderful. So uh, in addition to what we just heard from Vanessa tomorrow on CNN This Morning, comedian Roy Wood Jr. gives us a preview of some of his jokes for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. 
It all starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.